back to some semblance of normalcy. So that's a gift. Guys, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump straight into our text for today. Sound good? Awesome. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the gift of a day like Mother's Day. Even if it was invented for us by uh, companies that sell greeting cards, it's a, it's a built-in reminder to celebrate the people you've put in our lives and to celebrate the way that you, God, nurture us and care for us and mother us. You're so good to us, Lord. God, today as we take a few minutes to dig into your word, we ask that you would be present. Holy Spirit, be our discipler, be our teacher today. Illuminate the text. Let us hear from you. Uh, God, we just want to worship you today. We're grateful for the opportunity to do it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, guys, we are jumping back into our... There was my paper the whole time. We are jumping back into our series in Acts. Uh, Pastor Jesse did a great job last week of getting us mentally kind of back into the book. We took a break for Easter and then our short series on holiness, but we're back at it. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. And guys, we have a real chunky boy of a passage today, but I think it's going to be good. I think God has something great for us in the text today. Today we're going to be talking about the diversity of the kingdom of God. And, and, and by the way, not just the diversity, but the amazing hope of the diversity of the kingdom of God. Now, I know that as soon as I said that word, some of us were already tempted in some way to kind of roll our eyes. Language like diversive or inclusive or whatever has been, has been co-opted in our current partisan culture and in drawn into the culture war. And, and sometimes just using that word can make us think that whoever's talking is talking about something that is politically charged. Do me a favor and take that mental idea and throw it out the window and into your garbage can and put the garbage can out at the street. Because that's not what we're about. Guys, uh, I want to say it this way. If I'm being honest, I couldn't care less what the cultural baggage is around language like this. And the reason is this. Regardless of how our culture and our current cultural climate might be trying to co-opt things like this and draw so that's a distraction. If the Bible teaches on something, then we have to do the hard work of sorting out our cultural bias and engaging the truth of the gospel. Amen? So let's do our best this morning to let the scripture speak. Some of you are like, I didn't even like flex when you said this word. I don't know why we're talking about it. But the people in the room... You, you know I'm talking to you, and you're like, yeah, okay, okay, I got it, I got it, I'll set it aside. Let's do our best, set aside some of our cultural, political, social presumptions, and let the Scripture, let the Spirit speak for itself. Sound good? And the reason I say that, the reason I start there is that the Bible teaches that God unapologetically calls a diverse church unto Himself. Because we need to celebrate this. We need to celebrate this and allow it to challenge us and allow it to fill us with hope. My hope today is that as we reflect on the diversity of the kingdom of God as represented in the story, that it won't just challenge some of our own prejudices, but that it will 
Fill us with the hope of the God who is so good, so gracious, so loving, so adamant, so sovereign that he can call any of us unto himself. Even the worst of us. Even the other, even the outsider, anyone God can call into his kingdom. There's a lot of hope in that. So, this means that to engage the biblical teaching, you and I will have to face our own tribalism, our own limitations that we place on the kingdom of God. Whether we want to face this or not, church, you're like, we haven't even gotten to the text yet. Can you lay off me for a second? No. <laughs> Whether we want to face this or not, we as humans naturally, we naturally have people that we don't like. We naturally have people that we identify as the other, as the them, as the outsider. People who it's just easy for us to divide and push away as not of us. But God does something against that. God pushes on that. And we've got to be willing to be challenged in that, that natural part of our person. So, with all that in mind, let's buckle in and jump into a long text. We're in Acts chapter 10, starting in the first verse. It says this. Now, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging there with one Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants, a, a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now the next, next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one who are you looking for? For 
what is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with her, or to even visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word, he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Now you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not, not, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among them, circumcised who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. And this, beloved, is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray again, even though we started here with prayer. Father, we ask that you would illuminate this text clearly. You are so kind. You're so kind, Father. We ask as we as we sit and we reflect on this passage, a, a big, long chunk, a whole story, that you, Holy Spirit, would be our discipler, that you would illuminate, that we would hear from you what our hearts need, and that we would leave this space having heard from you today. We love you, Jesus. pray these things in your name. Amen. I love this story. The story really speaks for itself, right? 
but, but there are a couple cultural pieces, historical pieces in here that, that might kind of muddy the water. So I'm going to walk back through. I'm going to try and help us kind of get on the same page with this text. And, and essentially what we're going to do is we're going to take a good, hard look at both Cornelius and then at Peter. And I think when we do that, the meaning of this overall text is just going to, just going to become clear. That's going to lead us eventually to some of Jesus' teaching from the Gospel of John. And if all goes according to plan, we will end our time with some reflection, but really with just some celebration and thanksgiving for how good God is. Sound like a plan? So the story here, even though it's a relatively long text, is pretty easy to follow, right? You've essentially got this guy Cornelius. He receives a vision. He sends for Peter. Peter gets a vision. Peter shows up. Awesome stuff happens. The Holy Spirit is there, and that's kind of it, right? But let's, let's walk back through this and kind of, kind of fill in the details here. So, so remember, we're still within, at this point, the first couple years since Jesus rose from the dead. This is the early life of the church. In the time that, in this time, the short time since Jesus' ministry, the church in Jerusalem has exploded with life and conversion, and then exploded with suffering and persecution. And that persecution caused this amazing scattering of God's people who, who brought the gospel message with them, who, who preached and planted churches across the whole region of Palestine, even into Samaria. And, and, and even in the midst of this, the message began to move outside of Judaism. And, and first it was uh, essentially exclusively some Galilean Jews and some Jews in Jerusalem. And then it became this larger Jewish movement. And then it opened up to Samaritans who, who were partially culturally Jewish. And then we began to see hints and glitters of folk even outside the Jewish faith, including the Ethiopian who we read about, who were hearing this gospel message. And all that becomes even more intense when, when one of the greatest persecutors of the early church, Saul of Tarsus himself, hears the gospel and begins to follow Christ. At this point, when the story kind of wraps back to Peter and reminds us, hey, Peter's still traveling around preaching to people and doing miracles, just like at the beginning of the book. By the time we get back to Peter, the gospel has exploded and expounded in so many amazing ways in this world. To even think of Saul of Tarsus, you know, put it in Saul's own words. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they, they glorified God because of it. To think of that man preaching the faith he tried to destroy. To think of the hated Samaritans worshiping God, worshiping their Creator alongside brothers and sisters who only months before would have gone weeks out of their way to avoid even walking into their city. To think of the, the hick hillbilly Galileans and the, and, and, and the urbanized, intelligent, progressive Jerusalemites coming together and worshiping the same God. To think of the message of the gospel spreading all the way to Ethiopia and beyond. By the time we get back to Peter, this thing has gotten thoroughly out of hand in the best way possible, right? And as we saw in our text last week, Peter is still doing exactly what he was doing the last time we saw him. 
He's traveling around, and everywhere he goes, he's preaching the gospel and performing signs. And it lands him in this house of another guy named Simon in the city of Joppa on the coast. You can look at your little Bible map in the back of your Bible and see this. And, and we get this split scene that happens simultaneously between Cornelius and Peter. So let's, let's kind of walk through each of those. So first in our text, we're introduced to Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, and he's not just a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion, which if you don't know what that means, it means he was in charge of 100 Roman troops. He was one of six centurions in uh, his specific, um, whatever they called it, his, his group of soldiers, 600 soldiers, and then 10 of those cohorts. There we go. It's in this text. <laughs> yeah, it's bad, guys. <laughs> each cohort is 600 soldiers, so six centurions in each cohort, and 10 cohorts make up a legion. And so he's part of the legion set over on this side of the Mediterranean, part of this specific cohort called the Italian cohort. And the thing you need to know about a centurion is he's kind of the middleman of the Roman army. For the most part, centurions were normal soldiers who had worked their way up. And they played one of the most vital roles in the whole Roman military complex. Their average Roman foot soldier, guys, the, the actual bar for making it into the Roman army was not terribly high. And the kind of guys who would end up as the foot soldiers in these cohorts were not the kind of guys you'd trust to babysit. You know what I'm saying? And so the centurions were directly responsible for the conduct and behavior of the soldiers underneath them. But they also got invited to sit at the battle table for the whole of their cohort and even the whole of their legion sometimes. And so they represented this middleman where they were representing the interests of the army, keeping a hand, keeping control on the foot soldiers, but also speaking up for their men at the big boy table. You know what I'm saying? These guys were well-paid, well-trained, and it was one of the ways in Roman society that a common-born man could kind of gain honor and gain position for himself, was serve well as a centurion, and life would go pretty well for you. So we have this man, Cornelius, who is almost certainly, by the way, a freed slave. And the reason we know that is because his name is Cornelius, which is a Roman name that freed slaves would take on to show you they were no longer a slave. <laughs> and so that's who this guy is. And he's living in Palestine. And what we notice here is he's part of a cohort of native-born Italians. This dude is Roman to the core. He's been shipped overseas, right? He is from the motherland of the empire. And here he is in Caesarea, which is a big port city, which is kind of the main Roman capital of all of Palestine. And, and what, what's probably happening here is that he's been assigned here with his homeland troops to kind of play political policeman to all the different important political figures who would come in and out of this port city, which is kind of the main connection for Rome to all of Palestine, right? This is an important guy, but also kind of a down-to-earth guy. And we're told four things about Cornelius. We don't get a lot of information about him, but we're told four things very specifically about his faith. I don't know if you guys see this. It says that he's devout. It says that he's a God-fearer. It says that he prays a ton. 
and he gives generously to the poor. You see that? He's devout. He's a God-fearer. He prays a ton. He gives generously to the poor. The only other things we know about him is his name's Cornelius. He's a centurion. That's like what he gives us, right? Here's his station. Here's his faith. Now, a couple things this tells us about his faith. God-fearer was actually a kind of a technical term that Jewish folk would use for Gentiles who were pursuing Yahweh, who believed in Yahweh. And so he's in this middle ground where he's heard at least the Jewish understanding of who God is. He's heard about the God of the scriptures. And on some level, he believes in him as pursuing him, but he hasn't converted to Judaism. Now, this, this gets into some really interesting stuff with just kind of Roman politics and Roman sociology. But, but the big thing is here, there would have been all sorts of social pressures for a Roman centurion to not convert to Judaism. One of the main ones being uh, Roman centurions were specifically required to worship the Roman emperor, which Jewish men could not do. And so we see this guy who's a God-fearer. He, he, he believes in Yahweh. Now, I've said that a couple times. That part's really important. See, the Romans had a really interesting take on religion. They really didn't care much about the actual belief foundation of religion. What they cared about in general as a society was the actual output in the real life of religious practice. And so when Roman, as a nation, would look at their centurions and say, hey, you have to worship the emperor's God and make all your soldiers worship the emperor's God. Well, they could care less if their centurions believed the emperor was God. As long as he went and burned the incense and said the thing and showed up to church, that created the social output they needed to keep their society moving the way they wanted. So it was normative for Roman soldiers, especially higher-ups, when they were assigned to certain parts of the empire to adopt the religious practices of that particular area because it made it easier for them to engage the local population. But we're told that Cornelius is devout. This tells us that he isn't just practicing or studying Yahweh because it's convenient, because he's stationed in Palestine. This tells us that he believes in Yahweh. He believes in Yahweh. He is pursuing him. What, what, if we're honest, likely started out as just a smart move for his job. Oh, I'm getting assigned to Palestine. Yeah, they've rebelled a bunch. I should figure out their whole religion thing. Has now landed him in a place where this guy, this guy is pursuing Yahweh. It says that he has led his whole family to believe in God, to pursue after him. And beyond that, it says that he prays continuously and that he loves and serves the poor. He gives alms regularly, which is just the term for essentially dividing up your resources for poor people. And by the way, if you want a picture, the most simple picture you can think of, of someone pursuing after God. You can't, get much, you can't do much better than Cornelius. He believes. He leads and loves his family well. He talks to God. And he helps people who are hurting. If that's not a picture of someone chasing after our God, I don't know what it is. 
But that's what we have. This, this high up, respected Roman citizen in the military, the very picture of the oppressor, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying this to be crass, but if you back up just a few chapters or a few books, what you'll find is Jesus tied to a Roman whipping post while a centurion orders his murder. And these are the people who have conquered Israel. These are the people who have taken away God's people's freedom. And this isn't just some soldier who, who signed up to, to get a good job. This dude's from the motherland. He's, he's as Roman as they come. He is the image of the oppressor for the average Jew. A Roman centurion occupying our land, commanding troops, keeping us away from true freedom, keeping us away from independence. And yet here he is, believing in Yahweh, speaking to him regularly, helping the hurting, leading his family well. What a, what a unique picture of a person. And, and when we're handed this picture of Cornelius, immediately it takes us into this scene where God speaks to him through a vision. An angel comes and speaks the word of God to Cornelius and says, Hey, I noticed all that stuff you do. Which, by the way, I feel like if nothing else you hear today, there's probably some of us in this space who just need to hear the truth that God sees you. God sees what you're doing. It's not invisible. It's not lost. It's not useless. God saw Cornelius. And he tells him, but I've seen what you're doing. I have something better for you. Go get this guy Peter and bring him here. And then it's over. What a great, what a great way to set it up, right? Like he just says, I've got I've said, see what you're doing. Go get this guy Peter. All right, I'm done. And then this picture zooms over to Peter, who's, who's hanging out at, at Simon the Tanner's, at, at this house on the shore, about, about a day and a half's journey away from Caesarea. They're both, they're both port cities, right? And he's hanging at the house of this guy, Simon the Tanner. And Je- Jesse talked about this a little bit already, but this is actually important for our story. There's something really interesting about the fact that Peter has landed at the house of a tanner. Because tanners were kind of a unique profession within Jewish world because they were inherently ceremonially unclean. And this is going to play really deeply into our text today, but, but, but tanners had to deal with dead animals and animal products all day long. They, they made leather and they made tallow and they made glues and they made ropes and all these different products they could make from dead animals, which means them, their whole house, and everyone who entered their house and touched their stuff were ceremonially unclean. Because that's how the ceremonial uncleanliness of Leviticus works. But Peter's hanging out at this guy's house, a fellow believer. He's up on the roof praying one day, which, by the way, isn't as cool as it sounds. It was normal for how they built those houses. They'd have these kind of patios up on the roof where you'd go and hang out. So Peter goes up there to get away from the, I'm assuming, overpowering smell of tanning leather. (laughs) And he's up on the roof praying, And they're making him some food. And in the midst of that, God puts him in a trance and gives him a vision. And the vision is of a sheet being lowered down like it was held by all four corners. So so imagine, right, like, you know, like the hobo has his little thing on the back of his stick, like a sheet being held by all four corners, essentially a bag 
being lowered down, and as it opens up, it's full of every kind of animal you can imagine. Deers, rabbits, snakes, lizards, bugs, birds, all the above, come pouring out of this bag. And God says to Peter, hey man, you said you're hungry. Go grab some food and eat. And Peter's response here is like not shocking, but also shocking. He says, oh, oh, oh no, Lord, I've, I've never eaten unclean food. And God's response is, hey, don't, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And then the vision repeats, and the same thing happens. God, I, I, I've never eaten unclean food. I wouldn't do that. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. And then the vision repeats. Oh God, I've never eaten unclean food. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. And then it's over. And if you understand or if you've spent time studying Jewish prophecy, in the Jewish mind, if God repeats something three times, you better not make him repeat it again. He's serious. If if God repeats something to the prophet three times, it will come to pass. Don't question it. So Peter has heard God say this three times. Do not call unclean what I've called clean. And this is, guys, this is, this is weird. It's weird for a couple of reasons. It's weird, first off, because Peter is directly referencing Scripture. Leviticus 11 says very clearly, it is sinful to eat this kind of food. And it is not sinful to eat this kind of food. Do that. And so what Peter is saying is, God, I I, I do my best to follow your word. I would would never eat unclean food. And God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And you have to imagine Peter's going, but you called it unclean. I've read Leviticus 11. (laughs) And so God just repeats himself. And you can see Peter's confusion here, right? Like, but God, you, you definitely called it unclean. And God just repeats himself. So Peter is stuck here in this place, contemplating what the heck does this mean? And I love, I love of all the things, in the, of all the places in the entire country that he could be sitting and contemplating God's laws about cleanliness and uncleanliness. He's sitting in a tannery, ceremonially unclean because he touched the building, wondering why God told him he could go eat lizards and bugs. Here's the piece to this, guys, and this is the piece that I think Peter knew, but he was just missing subconsciously. See, if you look at the law laid out in Leviticus, in the Torah, you can essentially divide it into two main categories. Theologians will divide it into three or four, but there's two main categories in the law set out in the Old Testament. And it's essentially this. Ethical laws that allow for holy living and ceremonial laws that allow for holy identity. Those are kind of the two main divisions within the law. Live this way because this is what's right and what's wrong. These are laws like do not murder, right? Follow God's design for sexual ethics, those sorts of things. But there's a whole other stack of laws that are identity-centric. 
If you do this or touch this or eat this, you will become unclean and you will need to be cleansed. And it all has to do, by the way, if you guys were here for our holiness series last month, it all has to do with the fact that Israel is the set-aside special people of God. And, and there's something about the holiness of God that requires holiness and set-apartness in the people who, who will be with him. And so God has elected Israel and set them aside from the rest of the world and said, you're going to be with me. And if you're going to be with me, then you have to be holy and set apart. And if you're going to be holy and set apart, then you have to follow these ceremonial laws. Peter knows all of this. Peter's a good Jewish boy. But he's not just Jewish. See, Peter's also a follower of Jesus. And Peter understands that there's something about the person and work of Jesus that has fundamentally changed humanity's relationship with God. See, under this new kingdom, this, this new thing God is doing, it's no longer just elect Israel who has to be ceremonially clean to go into the temple to commune with God. No, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain between the Holy of Holies and the, and the sanctuary was ripped asunder. Jesus' death and resurrection made a way for humanity to bridge the gap of unholiness and be in the presence of God and be with him and relate to him. I mean, Peter himself has borne witness to the very Spirit of God, the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that dwelled in the Holy of Holies and sat upon the mercy seat, the, the Spirit that spoke through the prophets and penned the Scripture. He witnessed as this Spirit, the flaming Spirit who came and led Israel through the desert, entered into broken, sinful humanity and dwelt within them as his living temple. Peter knows that something has fundamentally shifted in the way humans engage God. You see, Jesus, he didn't abolish the law. He didn't set the law aside. But there are parts of the law that Jesus just completely fulfilled. You no longer have to make yourself ceremonially clean to come before the presence of God because Jesus has washed you clean. You no longer have to atone for your sins afresh month by month so that you can approach God because Jesus has paid the price for your sins. The curtain is torn the temple is wide open. You have access to God. The Spirit doesn't dwell in temples built by man. He dwells within the believer. It's a new age. It's a new day. The ceremonial laws are beautiful and powerful and point to the gospel, but they are fulfilled. So, Peter is hanging out at a tannery because he knows, because of Jesus, it doesn't make him unclean. The Spirit of God didn't leave him when he went to hang out with Simon because Jesus has made him clean. So he hangs out and he goes on the roof and he prays. He invites people to come hang. But there's something stuck and misfiring in Peter's heart. He knows this. He's living this. And yet... 
When God says, hey man, doesn't that scorpion look delicious? Maybe it was something better than that. Look at that. This is called bacon. You've never heard of it before, but trust me. And Peter goes, no, oh no, God. I've, I've, I've never done that. I would, I would never do that. There's something about our tables, our hospitality, that's it's so, it's so foundational to, to who we are as humans. You know, it just kind of worms its way into your identity, into your person, that, that even though Peter has, has proclaimed the gospel to anyone and everyone, he's seen the Holy Spirit come upon Samaritans and drawn together the lost tribes, and he's seen God do miracles, and he is hanging out at the Tanner's house, he still can't bring himself to break kosher right? Such a weird disconnect. But it's, it's hardwired into him so deeply that God has to slap him over the head with it. You can't do this, Peter. You can't call something unclean that I've made clean. You don't get to make that call. You don't get to do that. And it's so ingrained in Peter that he has to come back to him three times, which is his way of saying, don't ask me again, Peter. This is what it is, right? And in that moment, a Roman soldier shows up. And we're looking for someone named Peter. And the Spirit says, go with them. Go with them right now. I have something here for you. And this is where the scenes collide, and it's so beautiful, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land us here quickly, I promise. The scenes collide, and Peter is brought to Cornelius, and he enters into this Gentile's house, and he even makes a deal out of it, going, I'm not even supposed to do this. <laughs> Which, by the way, not actually in the Bible. It's man-made traditions added later in the teachings of the rabbis. But, but he comes in there, and they, they, they share the whole stories, they go back and forth, and he presents the gospel, and he presents the gospel in one of the most unique gospel presentations in all of Acts, where he makes this big deal out of election. I don't know if you, I don't know if you noticed that in the way Peter presents the gospel here, but he goes, oh, Jesus didn't just reveal himself to anyone. It was to us, to the ones he chose. And, he, and he's making this deal out of this, not him, but the Spirit through him, because he's saying something so important for us that I want us to catch today. What he's saying in this moment is that God has called a new people unto himself. God has chosen a new people. When, when Jesus began his ministry, if you go back and read Mark 1.15, what does Jesus say when he walks onto the scene? Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. God is doing something new and he's calling people unto himself. And what he shows Peter here, what he's been saying since the very beginning, but what he beats Peter over the head with here is, I am calling a new people to myself. You don't get to choose who they are. I do. And I want everyone. I want all kinds of people. My gospel is good news for all people, everyone, everyone, even Roman centurions. 
I'm going to call all kinds of people unto myself. If you could make a list of the least likely people on the planet that a guy like Peter would go and share the gospel with, a Roman centurion would be right at the top of that list. But here's Cornelius. And you know what's amazing about Cornelius? is that we see in the story that God has been pursuing and calling Cornelius and opening up his heart to the gospel for months, if not years, prior to Peter ever meeting him. God has been at work in Caesarea. God has gone ahead of his apostle. And he's drawn this man into devout belief and into faithful pursuit and into intimate relationship where they pray and they speak and they know each other. They know each other well enough that when God speaks to Cornelius, he knows who it is. What a beautiful image. Peter just shows up to essentially affirm what God has already done. And his Peter is speaking the good news of the gospel. God is calling a new people unto himself. The death of Jesus is sufficient. You can have salvation from sins. As he's still speaking, the Holy Spirit anoints everyone in the room, and not just Cornelius, but his whole family that he's been devoutly, faithfully serving and leading for however long, comes to salvation and receives the Spirit and begins prophesying and begins speaking in tongues and begins operating in the power of God. And everyone in the room, all the Jewish believers are just mouth on the floor. What the heck is happening right now? It says they're astounded that the Holy Spirit would come upon even Gentiles because God is doing something new. The kingdom is not just for Israel anymore. The kingdom is for everyone. It's for all peoples. Guys, the gospel is good news for all people. When we read Revelation 21, and we see the new heaven and the new earth, it says that every tribe, every tongue, every nation is represented. God is calling unto himself a diverse family. All peoples. Because the, you know what the word every means in Greek? I've done this joke before. I've already, I've already used it. It means every. Every tribe. Well, what about that tribe in the rainforest that never heard the name of Jesus and they, and they don't exist anymore? Well, God said every tribe, so I'm pretty sure he knew about that one. Every language. Every nation ones that exist and ones that don't. Everyone will be represented in the kingdom. That's intense. And you know what it, this whole story shows us? This is, I think, the, the most amazing part. Because that, that's what this reminder brings to us. As we sit here and we go, well, who went and preached to that tribe? Apparently God did. Because he was able to do it here. <laughs> Look at this story. But who called Cornelius? And then who came and spoke to Peter? And then who brought them together? And then who anointed that family with the Holy Spirit and saved them? Well, this is all a work of God. Peter, the legendary apostle, the, this kind of father in the faith, well, he's lagging on behind going, wait, what are we doing? The whole time. God has to repeat himself. 
multiple times. Because God is the one advancing his kingdom, drawing unto himself all peoples, all tribes, all tongues. Because Jesus has made a way for us to be holy, for us to be clean, for us to be with him. We don't, we don't have to follow those laws anymore. Now, by the way, as a side note, this doesn't set aside the ethical laws. It doesn't set aside the fact that God has called us to holy living. Cornelius is not the stereotypical Roman centurion out raping and pillaging. He's a different kind of person. God has changed him. He's generous. He's kind. He leads his family well. When I say that the gospel is good news for all people, what I don't mean by that is the gospel means you just don't have to worry about anything. It's all good. Everyone's in. It's not what we see here. What we see here is that God is faithful and just to go out ahead of the church, ahead of the believer, and call all tribes and all nations and all people unto himself. And that when we are faithful to obey and faithful to participate, we are astounded at the people he draws in. So let me land with this, because I've gone over. Band, if you want to come up. This text overflows with hope. It overflows with joy. Because we worship a God who can call anyone unto himself. Beloved, there is no one you know, no one you have ever met who is outside the scope of the kingdom of God, who is outside the reach of the saving kindness and grace of our God. There's no one, not even the people you don't like, not even the people you hate. And I know as I say that, there's something in the room going, I don't hate anyone. I'm sorry, that's not true. If we were able to dig through your heart deep enough, there are people who wounded you, people who betrayed you, people who scare you. I think if we were all willing to be honest, we would realize there's at least one person or group of persons that we would probably need a vision from God to want to go and preach the gospel to. And I think if we're willing to be a step further honest, he might have to repeat it to us three times as well. But beloved, there is no one outside the reach of our God. There is no one so lost, so evil, so other, so outside that God can't draw them in. That's why in the parable of the feast, he says, go find them. Implore them. Go everywhere. Go into alleys. Go into the shadows. Go into the far places. Find people. Bring them here. Because our God loves to draw the dead to life, to draw the lost home, to call to himself one family diverse, wild, crazy, different, but one in the blood of Christ. But let us celebrate for a few minutes this gospel, this God, and this truth.